Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. I'm joined this time by not one but two guests. They are Laura Shields and Dirk Singer, communications consultants, members of Democrats Abroad and authors of an excellent piece which I'll include in the show notes called Swimming with the Sharks, What Progressives Can Learn from Republicans Against Trump. Now you may recall that on an earlier show I had Lib Dem candidate and comms expert Rob Blackie on talking about what the party can learn from how Trump himself communicates. This time then, with Laura and Dirk, we're going to have a look at what can be learned from those campaigning against Trump. Welcome, Laura. Welcome, Dirk. Thank you very much for having us. Hi, uh, thanks now, for having us along. Uh, I, I guess you'll probably be names unfamiliar to most listeners, so do you each want to do a quick one-sentence introduction of your wonderfulness? Uh, should we go with first with you, Dirk? So I'm a communications, a freelance communications director with about 20, 25 years experience. I used to um, own two agencies here in London, both a PR agency and a, and a digital marketing agency. Um, more recently, um, I work for myself, mainly for, um, for lifestyle reasons, um, across a range of brands. Actually, at the moment, uh, for a lot of travel and airline brands, which is, of course, very, very challenging given the sort of the, you know, the, the current yeah, pandemic. Imagine. I am a member of Democrats Abroad, as you said. I am half American. My dad's American. So I'm a dual US-UK citizen. Um, my dad is originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he was an American diplomat. Um, so he mm. used to travel around the world. And many, many years ago, he was the American consul in Edinburgh. Um, and when he left, I went to university and I've basically stayed ever since, which is why obviously I, you know, I, I sound the way I do, having, having sort of lived in Edinburgh and London, don't sound in any way after my sort of my American roots or, or, or background. Lovely. Laura, do you want to do a quick intro? Sure. So, yes, I'm Laura Shields and I am a communications consultant specialising in media presentation narrative development coaching. I live in Brussels, so I've been doing the EU-UK side of communication for quite a long time now, work with all sorts of different sort of uh, political clients as well as doing businesses and campaigns and things along those lines and um, before that I was a journalist in London for eight years so I used to work for the BBC and CNN. I'm also dual national, uh, I feel equally plugged into US as well as UK politics, in my case it's my dad as well uh, but he's from the great state of Vermont so not many swing voters uh, in, in the Bernie land uh, but yes I feel equally plugged in to both sides of the Atlantic discussion and yeah we have a particular interest in it. And from what you both said, I guess that answers the obvious question about why you might particularly have sort of interest in the, that question about how Republicans are, some Republicans at least, are campaigning against Donald Trump. The thing that has sort of struck me, particularly you know, reading your piece and, for example, the work of the group of Republicans called the Lincoln Project, is that they've caught people's eyes quite a lot. They've been very good at capturing media attention but I think there's a big question over whether what they're doing is really going to swing voters um obviously I think from from the title of your piece it sounds like you think that what they're doing is you know worth worth paying attention to is is has a chance of being effective so do you want to say a little bit about what those campaigners are doing and what's caught your eye about them so look I think we have to start off with a couple of caveats which is that we're in July we haven't had the election yet. We don't know if this stuff has worked is the first thing. So we can only talk about what we think is good and what is arresting and what has the potential to work. And secondly, I think we've already, you've already identified this in your introduction. Uh, the Lincoln Project in particular 
are extremely good at their own self-promotion, which they need to do because they're a small organization that needs to punch above their, its weight. The quality of what they put out is extremely effective, and I'll go on to talk about that at a moment. But they have several very high-profile uh, members, including George Conway, who is, of course, the lawyer who is, he's married to Kellyanne Conway, one of Trump's closest advisors. Also, Rick Wilson, who's an extremely um, high-profile uh, strategist, former Republican strategist, or probably he would argue he still is a Republican strategist. He lives in Florida. They have big Twitter followings. They're extremely good at promoting what they do. And actually, every time there's a poll that comes out that shows that Trump is going down, they call it the Lincoln Project effect. So they're quite good at promoting themselves. At the same time, you know, they arguably produce extremely good content. And you can tell that this is a group that is run by professionals. They're opportunistic. They're incredibly quick when they bring ads out, attack ads. So the point is they're there in the moment. They don't just sit around debating whether or not they're gonna get on and do it, they do it. So for example, the story that came out recently that Putin had been paying in cash to have Taliban and other militants in Afghanistan kill US soldiers. That story came out, I think, on a Saturday. By that evening, there was an ad. Likewise, they'd done something similar on stuff around China. So they, they move in real time. The ads are short. They often use Trump's own words against himself, which is very effective. They run them like news bulletins and they're ruthless. You know, they don't dance around and sort of take little bites. They absolutely go for the jugular every single time. And so there's that real sense of intensity about it. I mean, that's my take on it. That's what got my eye. I think Dirk probably has some other things to bring to it. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously as, as, as liberals and as progressives, it's an incredibly interesting exercise in a unique situation. As we said in the article, it would be a little bit in the UK as if Lincoln Crosby all of a sudden, you know, one day um, announced that Boris Johnson was a danger to democracy. Yeah. And him and, his, and him and his colleagues would henceforth be running campaigns yeah. to sort of to get rid of Johnson. And, and if they teamed up with, say, Dominic Cummings' wife, it's a, it, that, totally, totally. It's a really strange combination you know, of people it in, in it, isn't it, in many ways. But if we, but if we imagine that that happened all of a sudden, mm. um, you know, the sort of the type of campaigning that would be on our side, for lack of a better word, would be very, very different to what we're used to. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that sort of that fascinated Laura and myself is that you know, so we're getting a live case study of people who are using, you know, a craft that they've learned uh, for conservative candidates, you know, over the past 10, 20 years mm. and are, you know, and are sort of, and are putting into, into effect to um, elect Democrats and to get rid of, and to get rid of Trump. The Lincoln Project is not a particularly large group. Mm. Um, I mean, Laura shared an article with me yesterday from, from Politico, which made the point that, you know, that their media spend is actually only in the millions, which is obviously in US terms, which is not a great deal of money. And, you know, and as we said, a lot of what they do is, you know, is in terms of getting free publicity for their, for their, for their work and being, on, and being on Twitter. So the question is, you know, is this only a sort of a, um, you know, a campaign that mm. appeals to the, to the Beltway set mm. um, in the US? So people who are, who are politically engaged. And I kind of, I think back to, you know, like, like both of you, I've been on Twitter for mm. a long time. And I think back to 10 years ago um, in, the, in, the, in the PR and brand world. And I had clients say something to me again and again and again and again, which was, you know, why should I be, you know, why should I be on Twitter? And why should my brand be on Twitter? My mum isn't on Twitter, is, was, was mm. what I always heard. And I always used to say the same thing to them. And I used to say, no, your mum is not on Twitter, but the people who she listens to and the people who she reads, they are. Um, mm. And the stuff that they produce is informed mm. by what they see. Um, and so obviously they're informing the news agenda. You know, I mean, they're very, very good at, at trolling Trump. You know, I mean, a lot of the ads that they place are, $5,000 ad buys mm -hmm. on Fox News, Washington DC franchise to make sure that he sees it, he gets angry, he has no self-control, 
you know, he sort of, he mm. starts um, rage tweeting, um, he gives them free publicity, they get free media publicity off the back of that. And also, I guess another parallel you can make is that small groups with a high media profile can be very, very effective. Um, and I was thinking about this yesterday, is that they are kind of a benign version of, if you remember the Swift voters in 2004, mm. Um, who really demolished John Kerry's campaign. And these uh, were former military veterans in the US, weren't they, who tried to undermine John Kerry's image as a military hero? Correct, because obviously, you know, this was just in the aftermath of the um, Iraq war, and the Democrats figured that they could only win an election by having, you know, a so-called mm. war hero, mm. um, which was sort of one of John Kerry's main kind of claims, claims to fame. And what the Swift voters did was they, you know, was they in quite a, quite a vicious and quite an unfair way is they obviously undermined his whole claim about the military service. And essentially, as far as I remember, basically called him a coward. Um, and, you know, they were not a large group, um, but they had a big impact and they really demolished a lot of John Kerry's talking points um, at the time. And that's also another thing that the Lincoln Project are very, 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 very good at. I mean, it's that they attack a candidate's strengths, not weaknesses. Mm. Um, you know, so, so for example, obviously they went after, you know, they went after Trump's walk um, mm. at, West, at, at West Point simply because, like, you know, he's been using Sleepy Joe as a kind of as a, as a campaign talking point and they're trying to demolish his, you know, his, his, the things that he kind of, that he's trying to campaign on one by one. Mm. Mm. There's quite a lot of different factors in there. I guess just unpacking a few of them in turn. I'm thinking about what you initially were saying about the speed, Laura, is one thing that strikes me is that the Lincoln Project's ads are coming out so quickly after news stories break that actually, and I say this partly as somebody who's just written a book about how often the news is inaccurate and you should always trust it, um, in a way they don't actually know if the stories that they're featuring are true because it's just, you know, the story has come out, mm -hmm. let's get the ad out. Now, I guess if you're campaigning against Trump, you can maybe take a slightly relaxed view of that and say, well, you know, Trump isn't exactly, yeah. <laughs> he isn't exactly careful to keep to truth himself. So I can see how in a slightly hardened, cynical way, you can say, well, tough, you know, we'll report what's in the news. It turns out not to be true. That's, that's not our problem. I'm not sure for others wanting to copy the tactics in other cases, that would necessarily, you know, be as, as straightforward to to sort of square with with people's conscience and ethics. So do you, how, do you think that speed is possible whilst also wanting to be careful enough to be sure that what you're saying is true? Yeah, well, you see, I think that what they do in a lot of these cases is they're not... So we're talking about the Russia story for a moment, and of course we don't know what the ins and outs of that are, but I think it's consistent with the way in which they do things generally, not just the speed, but also getting the story out there so that it's talked about. And that really is a classic conservative way of campaigning, which is that it doesn't matter if something's true. It's the same thing as a 350 million a week thing for vote leave. It's the same thing that you used to see other, you know, um, pollsters and campaigners who would be working for Republicans, um, or for businesses on climate change. The point is you get the story out there and you inject the doubt and you get people talking about it. And it doesn't, you know, as a campaign tactic, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. Because the point is you're forcing the conversation, you're leading it every time that you have to get somebody out to defend it or to criticize it or to shoot it down, they're still talking about it and they're not talking about the things that they want to be doing. Now, I take your point about the ethics of it. I think the Russia story is not necessarily the best one to go with in this sense because actually we don't know what happened, even though, you know, what's interesting is that the intelligence community seems to be kicking back very hard, you know, via the New York Times about 
the briefings. Uh, but and certainly on some of the other things, you know, the speed and the ethics of it, they're mostly using Trump's words. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And they're using existing footage that's in the news. I mean, a lot of the stuff looks like mini yeah. news bulletins. So it's not even like they're going out there and making wild assertions. Yeah. They're just saying things like, he said he would protect you. Mm. And now look who's dying. I mean, it's not even like there's any magic to it. Yeah. I, one thing that strikes me thinking about what an equivalent set of ads in the UK might look like is that occasion relatively early on in the coronavirus crisis but after the crisis has started when Boris Johnson talked about how he had shook the hands on a hospital visit I think it was he had shaken the hands of people who were suffering from coronavirus Mm -hmm. which I mean my goodness that looks such an awful misjudgment now and mm-hmm. that's the sort of footage that I suspect in the US political context would be all over social media and ads. Yeah. I don't think I've seen anything from even, say, the likes of Momentum here in the UK that uses that footage. And I, I don't know, Dirk, if, if you think, may, is that in part a cultural difference? You know, thinking about your experience of working with brands and so on, about what is seen as acceptable in different countries. But Yeah, I mean, that's actually, that's actually a good point. And you do start to question why you know, some of those many things that um, Boris Johnson of the minister said fairly on in the sort of in the, um, you know, as the pandemic was starting to hit, why those views haven't been, you know, why those words haven't been used mm. against him. I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, in the US, you know, that famous phrase of, of slow the testing down, please, you know, has been, has been replayed over and over and over and over and ads, not just, um, you know, by groups such as the Lincoln Project, but also there's another um, you know, another pack, which is called the Midas Touch, which is set up by, by, by three um, uh, brothers who have democratic backgrounds. And they also use that footage over and over again um, in, 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 in some of their advertising. Um, but yeah, I mean, you do sort of wonder whether, you know, as liberals in general, whether we have that killer instinct. You know, I mean, if you take, first of all, the ads that were run about, you know, Donald Trump not being able to hold a glass of water mm. with, um, two hands and you know and sort of walking down the um, ramp um, and I did see a lot of Twitter commentary and some of it was you know were replies to me as well saying well you know this is making fun of people's disabilities mm. and we need to be careful and etc etc now my youngest son is disabled so that's obviously that's something mm. that I'm very very aware of but then you think about it and you think well you know who are the who are the first ones to make a candidate's health an issue you know I mean mm. the Trump organization is you know, is, is, is trying to paint Biden as someone who had, uh, you know, who has dementia. And four years ago, you know, when um, Hillary Clinton got a bad case of the flu, you know, I mean, they were running clips basically saying that she had brain damage. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, so there's a question of, you know, that to a certain extent that we have to overcome um, some of these scruples that we've, that we've got. Here. And yet, I think actually it might just be a question of putting certain things in place, because if you, again, you know, we were talking, I think, at the beginning about how we have to remember that most, the real world is not on Twitter, the real world Mm. is not obsessed with politics. But if you look at the way in which everyone's falling over themselves to get Keir, when Keir Starmer stands up in PMQs and basically puts time and place on things that Johnson or the government has said and then puts them to the prime minister and and Boris Johnson gets visibly angry and seems to fall apart. I mean, that's kind of what the Lincoln Project do. They basically cut things out and quote it chapter and verse back and do the same. And that's what Keir Starmer's doing. People seem to love that because it's just about competence. So if you can turn that into just little clips, it would be, you know, it would be absolutely perfect. The other thing that I was going to add into all of this, you Mm. talk about the coronavirus and the words. I mean, the other one that would be perfect for making into video is the Dominic Cummings stuff. Mm. You know, what was their one selling point? we are the people we're we're not the elite we're the you know we're not the establishment we're coming here to overturn it 
what happens? You get one rule for the country yeah. and one rule for everybody else. I mean, that would have been a perfect time to bring out mm. a, I, an I ad. I guess you're the, the parallel with Prime Minister question time, I mean, maybe actually slightly undermines the point because William Hague, when he was leader of the Conservative Party, you know, he's the classic case that he regularly bested Tony Blair in PMQs and you know, mm-hmm. he'd get the clips on the evening news and because this mm. was in the 2000 and uh sorry the 97 to 2001 parliament this was pretty much pre-social media so but it was you know evening news clips with then still mass audiences he would you know come out really well about of course when it actually came to election time he got completely trounced and and so i do wonder whether there is a bit of just this feeds partisanship on both sides rather than switch people and the glass of water example i think is a good contemporary one. So again, the context for anyone who hasn't seen it is that Donald Trump had a lot of trouble raising glass water to his lips and had to use both hands. And that clip has then been used to have a go at him as if he is old, you know, not uh, not up to the job and so on. I thought actually Trump got the better of it because when he then in his rally speech lifted a glass of water with one hand and then threw the glass to one side, that sort of crashed on the floor. And I thought actually, you know what? If I was a Trump-leaning supporter, I would, I, that's the image that would stick in my mind, and that would really probably firm up my support for Trump. Then. But, but don't you think that, that all he did was, was reinforce the initial impression in people's heads by talking about him? He talked about his, his rant war for 15 minutes during that speech rather than talking about campaign talking points. And I thought to myself at the time, he made the mistake that we as liberals mm. always make you know, which is to sort of, which is to go on and on and on and on and on about an attack point against us. You know, I mean, we, we were talking about the, um, you know, about the 360 million pounds or whatever it is, um, stat that was, you know, that was, that was quoted during the referendum campaign. What did we do? We just went on and on and on and on about that stat. And all that most people on the outside heard was, you know, was they somehow got a yeah. feeling that we were paying the EU a lot of money. And all we were doing because we were amplifying that initial point. So mm-hmm. I would say by him talking about it for 15 minutes and even sort of even mimicking the actual walk that he did was he amplified the initial charge against him and made more people remember what was originally yeah. being, you know, what he was originally being, being accused yeah. of. I wonder if, if actually what his supporters will remember, though, is, oh, another case of fake news, you know, another reason to disbelieve attacks on Trump, because I saw Trump lift a glass of water, throw it away, clearly he's able to do it. Okay. Before, uh, yeah, I mean, so to the, on the, just to come back on the point about partisanship and just and all the rest of it, I mean, not everybody watches PMQs, then Labour's polling is getting better. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to, you know, we're a long way from the next election, all the rest of it. But actually, Keir Starmer's approach does seem to be closing the gap a bit. But that's basically because we're dealing with competence. On the second point about Trump supporters, look, the people, Trump is one of the, is the most polarising figure that the US has ever really had. I mean, some people say it was Clinton is the second one, possibly. But the point is, if you like Trump and you're going to vote for Trump and you're watching a Trump rally and you already think he's a good guy, these videos are not for you. They're not targeting you. They're not targeting people who think Trump's a great guy. You're targeting, and this comes on to audiences and partnerships, partner, partisanship. You're targeting the independents uh, who may have voted for Trump in 2016 and you're, and you're uh, targeting Republicans who held their nose and voted for him or didn't vote and didn't vote for Clinton and you're targeting the people who want a way out mm. uh, and the, because American politics is so tribal and I mean that in the truest sense of the word very groupish very values and identity bound it's a really big deal 
to come out and change your mind. And what the ads are doing is they're targeting those people. And it's also the similarity with the, the campaign that I'm particularly impressed by, which is the Republican voters against Trump campaign, which I just think is wonderful. And, and we should do more of that here. Yeah. And again, it's a very small, it's largely Twitter based, they do other things, but it is exactly what it sounds like short smartphone shot testimonials of people who either voted for Trump in 2016 or couldn't coming out and talking about why they can't vote for him in 2016, explaining why they can or can't, you know, can vote for, uh, for Biden. And also talking a lot about things that transcend policies. So there's no stuff in there about healthcare. There's no stuff in there about welfare payments or things along those lines. It's all about character and identity and values and belief. Mm. And you have evangelical Christians and pro-lifers in there who are also talking about what it means to be a good person mm -hmm. and decency mm. and all of these kinds of things which sit right along the Republican small C conservative values frame, but actually also can transcend that in certain spheres. So what you see with a lot of these Republican voters against Trump is when they talk about Biden, they will quite happily say, I disagree with a lot of his policies. It's going to drive me nuts if he's in, mm. you know, as a Democrat, but he has character, he has decency, mm. and these are things mm. that we need in a leader. And I think that it's really important to create these kinds of, I don't know what you'd call them. I mean, the word that they all use is permission structures, which mm. I kind of love and hate, but basically what you're doing is showing that coming out, changing your mind, talking mm. about these things, crossing the divide is okay. The closest we got to this with Brexit was the Remain and Now campaign, yeah. which was absolutely mm -hmm. brilliant and did not get nearly enough attention. And it was so good. And there were a lot of us who were saying, you need to put these people in the front line mm. because it, it's what kills the, we've had a vote democracy yeah. argument. And absolutely. nobody did enough with them. We just talked to ourselves. We didn't bring out the dissident voices, which is what you need when the public is supposedly yeah. so divided. The thing that um, I, I guess worries, because I do want Trump to lose the election. <laughs> the thing that worries me about the ads, both actually the Republicans against Trump, where they have, you know, the one person, the Republican voter talking to camera, and also the Lincoln Project, where it's much more the clips of the news and so on, is that when I watch those ads, I find they appeal to me. I find them quite persuasive and I am a liberal and a foreigner. So I'm very much not the target audience in a way that I'm very aware that if I say watch political ads from uh, maybe a contest in the Midwest or aired in the Midwest in the States, actually whether the ads are Republican or Democrat, they will be full of messaging and imagery that just at best leaves me baffled, you know? And, and so a, a classic ad, which could be Republican and Democrat, will involve somebody on horse riding, touting a gun with a huge US flag behind them. And, and so I can get in a logical sense about what mm. the buttons are the ad's trying to push, but I know it's not trying to appeal to someone like me. What I worry about these anti-Trump ads is they seem to be trying to appeal too much to things that I can understand in my gut, or rather, you know, that my gut is moved by. When I'm sure, you know, Republican voters who were who are trying to might think about voting for Trump, I, they're surely more different from me than that. Surely these ads should be appealing to somebody quite unlike me. But 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 I mean I think I would make I'd make two points about mm. that. I mean first of all, you know as Laura said, a lot of the campaigning mm. by the Never Trumpers is about values, is mm. about decency, is about competence, and these are things that everyone cares about. Yeah, that's you know, true. Everyone wants you know sort of a decent human being to be you know to be to be leader of the free world and to have the most powerful office in the West. You know, everyone wants someone who's competent. Everyone wants someone who, you know, who you feel has your best interests at heart, 
even if you may not agree you know, with all of their um, policy decisions. On the point about someone on horseback in the Midwest, actually the Lincoln Project are also doing exactly that. I mean, they're doing two things. First of all, they're running um, ads on a national level, um, on social media and also a little bit on television mm. um, against Trump. But they also have a mission to flip the Senate. Um, and, you know, and one that we looked at recently was to support um, Steve Bullock, who, of course, used to be the governor of Montana. Mm. He was, you know, one of the early Dem Democratic presidential candidates until he dropped out. He's now running for Senate. Um, he's a moderate Democrat. So he's the type of person who obviously, who the never Trumpers when the Lincoln Project feel quite mm. close to anyway. And the ads that they're running on his behalf are exactly that of, you know, sort of, of him, you know, out on farms and, uh, you know, talking to people in the Midwest and stuff that for, you know, metropolitan liberals like us would be quite alien, but makes a lot of sense for that, for that yeah. audience. And also, of course, the fact that they're running that in Montana. Montana is a, um, is a small media market mm. and, you know, and they don't have, you know, a huge amount of money compared to other groups, but that's a market where, you know, where a little bit of money comparatively mm. goes a long way. Um, so they're being quite smart yeah. in, you know, in, in, in pushing it into a seat that they think that they can flip on a candidate, um, you know, that they like and that they feel close to um, and, uh, you know, and where their spend will actually have an impact too. Yeah, and also the, one of the things that the themes that, that comes through quite strongly is that one of the reasons why a lot of these conservatives who aren't going to vote for Trump is because they think he's betraying conservative values. So like respect for the rule of law, the constitution, you know, respect, you know, one of them said that the moment he changed his mind was when uh, Trump stood up in Helsinki with Putin and said that he trusted what Putin was saying over his own intelligence agencies. Mm. The national security, the troops, betrayal, all of this comes through. Now we can, you know, these are certainly things that even if philosophically I don't, I don't go for the troops argument so much because it's not my politics. I totally understand it and respect it as a, as a sort of value system that other people can relate to. So I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I know that there are certain ads that yes, we find them palatable, but maybe we should all, and, that, that, and should we be worried by that? But maybe we're less polarized than we think, mm. actually. Maybe when you emphasize what the transcendental qualities are that we all have in common you can find the common ground there and I just don't think we're very good at doing that in the UK I think Linton Crosby is very good at doing the kind of targeting people's points I certainly don't think anyone to the left of the conservatives and I have to be careful about saying that because depending on who you talk to if you say progressives they'll be like yellow Tories <laughs> or uh you know or I mean Dirk and I are probably apostates in terms of where we sit because you know both the parties that we flip between probably hate us because mm -hmm. basically we're pragmatic yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, Steve Schmidt, who's one of the Lincoln Project um, founders and who I believe ran um, McCain. McCain. Yes, that's right. I mean, he has a phrase that he uses and he calls it the coalition of the decent, which is, you know, as Laura said, are people who believe in the, you know, in the rule of law, something as fundamental, you know, as knowing that, you know, that the person in power, that, that, that when he or she loses an election, will hand over gracefully. And it's the first time, you know, in American politics, that we're in a situation where there are serious doubts about whether Trump will, will go quietly. And that means it's a very, you know, it's a very unusual situation. And the type of situation that, uh, you know, that's, that's being faced in the US is more akin to when you have authoritarian governments and you have a broad democratic front, um, you know, against them, which is obviously everyone from, you know, conservatives who believe in, you know, who believe in democracy and the rule of law, and then uh, everyone to the left of that. Mm. And the framing on this is really consistent too. I mean, if you look at the fact they're called the Lincoln Project, and on top of that, it's America or Trump is their main hashtag. 
I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's not Democrat, you know, Biden versus Trump, it's yeah. everybody against Trump, but it's about the, you know, country before party, country before individual. So I do think there's quite a lot of crossover appeal there. Now, do we know if it's going to work? No, but I can see how it can play. Yeah. And in terms of what the lessons might be for, for example, campaigning in Britain, it strikes me the Lincoln Project has two things going for it, which are not easy to replicate in Britain. So one is uh, that they're able to spend money on TV ads and they target them really smartly. As, as you were mentioning earlier, Dirk, you know, they seem to target the ads at TV shows that they think Donald Trump will be watching. And so they then provoke Donald Trump into a Twitter storm, which would then gives them vastly disproportionate coverage for the ads compared to if just Donald, Donald Trump showed the slightest degree of self-restraint. Um, so, but that both requires being able to run targeted TV ads and having somebody who you can provoke into a Twitter storm who is your opponent, as it were. And I mean, there are many things one can criticise Boris Johnson for. One of the much more minor ones is actually just how bland he is on Twitter. You know, the Boris Johnson personality for all its, you know, warts and all, but obviously at times it's been a really politically powerful personality. That personality doesn't really come through from his, so, you know, it, I can't imagine him being provoked in anything like the same way as Donald Trump. So given those two differences, what are the, what are the bits that you would particularly pull out from how the Lincoln Project has managed to be small, not massively financially well off, et cetera, and yet still really impactful? What, what can others learn from them? Laura, do you um, want to go first? Or? No, Dirk, you go first yeah. and then I'll come in. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, watching an interview with James Carville recently on, on MSNBC, who, of course, who ran the um, Clinton campaigns in the 1990s. And he was talking about the difference to the way that the Lincoln Project operates and the way the Democratic group operates. And he said that if this was a Democratic group or a liberal group, you know, they would be having a conference call with, sort of, with 20 people involved in a big discussion and you know, going through lots of approval groups. And I remember during, the, um, during what I consider to be the worst political campaign of modern times in Britain, which is stronger in, during the referendum. And I remember that the post-mortem the post afterwards said that those ads went through 25 people for approval. And we all work in communications, and we know that if you mm. have you know, lots and lots and lots of blocks and lots of people looking at it, then it gets watered down and watered down and watered down. At the end of the day, you're left with nothing. Um, you know, which is one of the reasons why, you know, why they ended up with such, you know, with such terrible mm. um, um, campaign material. And Carvel made the point, they just go ahead and they just, and they just do it. You know, and it comes back to the point that, you know, that Laura's making, is making recently, that it doesn't matter who's right, it matters who's first. Um, you know, they set the agenda, they're fast, they get people talking about it, they get people reacting to it, and they then control the narrative. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we on the, you know, on the liberal, liberal left have to become much, much better at, um, and something that we, can, that we can learn from, definitely. And I also think that they are, you know, don't forget that the people who are behind this are professionals. They have access or they, you know, or, and contacts that, you know, a lot of, the, if you look at things like anti-Brexit campaigns, which is very amateur mm. in comparison, but the sort of the access to the contacts and the data, mm they know why it is that they're doing what they do. Like one of the things that I think is most impressive and that Dirk and I have discussed before is you get a sense that with all these specific campaign groups, they know exactly who their audience is. They know exactly what makes them tick. You know, they have a really good understanding of that and they go after that. So they carve out the territory, they demarcate it, they, they find out how to communicate with that audience and they do it. One of the things that I notice about the UK is that it tends to be like, ooh, let's make an ad. 
let's see how it lands mm. right and you know and that doesn't really work you do and it's you know it's not necessarily about on facebook do you do you know every single person gets micro targeted although it might be i mean I, I don't sort of i don't do that kind of approach but the point is is you can't just go and shout which is what a lot of the time the the more of the left does and go outrage and then sort of expect people to come to you you actually have to go right who do we want to talk to how do we shift them given how our system works how to be realistic you know the uk and the us both have first past the post systems which is why again the lincoln project all about the swing states forget california right mm. yeah so again the left get out of london mm. target so realism about where you can have influence knowing your audience and having a really demarcated campaigns and ads and on top of that creating landing zones so you know i mean one of the things that we put in the piece is that empathy is not endorsement but i think it's also one of the areas where the lib dems went wrong with that message about revoke frankly because i think that certainly for a lot of people yeah you know a lot of people like that message but the people who are in the bag but a lot of people had serious democratic concerns around that which is that basically they felt that what that message sent was exactly the same as what boris johnson was trying to do on the other side and so again empathy is not endorsement but it means understanding what makes the different audiences tick and then finding a way to lever them and i just don't think we've got that effective that effective at doing it in the liberal or the left sphere of politics in the uk and there's an analogy that somebody mentioned to me which i think has some mileage which is that you know if let's say you go to see the doctor and it turns out you have to have your le leg amputated if the doctor explains with you know empathy and sympathy look i'm terribly sorry this is why we're... you're you're going to have a very different reaction than if they just rather harsh say hey, right the answer to this is we're going to chop your leg off and you're immediately be into no but should, are you sure we have to and i wonder if part of the problem with the revoke policy for the lib dems in 2019 was it it's just sounded too brutal and harsh and that even potentially the same policy dressed up in different language about look this is just a complete mess how on earth are we going to get out of this the only way we can get out of this is just to call the whole thing off take a breather and yeah maybe we come back to it in the future you know just there's there, there was a much more empathetic way potentially of of communicating that now i have no idea because i've not tested it and i've not seen anyone who tested that more empathetic approach but i think that illustrates how even what is quite a clear stark policy underneath it can be presented in very different ways depending on your tone and presumably that's something which i think brands and commercial enterprises are often rather better at because they often have a much more of a focus on what is the overall tone of their communications um yeah i mean also obviously that you know one thing that brands do incredibly well is you know is they work with uh, major advertising agencies mm. which which i have which which put a lot of you know not only put a lot of work into creativity but a lot of work into data and obviously mm. data and research um and you know and having a strategy and having a plan and being able to reach you know certain consumer touch points and being able to talk to people in the way that they think um, is very, very important. And I think that using your revoke example is you're absolutely right. You know, revoke is a very harsh word. Mm. It sounds like you're just going to can the thing and, you know, instead of and just, you know, and just, and just ignore everything. Whereas something like pause is much better because you're basically saying, you know, look, we've been talking about this for the past three and a half years. We haven't got any further. We have a lot of problems, you know, on our plate. Let's deal with all these different problems that we've got first. Um, and then we can get back to it. And that's a much better way of sort of, of framing essentially the same thing. I mean, I do think also just to sort of stick with this, mm. I, you know, I, 
I have uh, I was probably a bit harsh in my criticism of Revoke, although I genuinely think I I felt like I, I couldn't support the party because of it. But mm. um, don't forget that the Lib Dems also had had a lot of success with the bollocks bollocks to Brexit, exactly, uh, yeah. which did really cut through. But mm. of course, that's in a proportional representation set up and it was a, a single issue election which was about Europe and only Europe and it was about scooping up the European yeah. identity and all the rest of it so that kind of had worked and you know I think Joe's you know that sort of revoke idea was the fortune favors the bold the problem is is you need to be bold yeah. but not just hammer people yeah. you know bold but don't bludgeon you need to be yeah. a sensitive hammerhead shark basically yeah. which means you <laughs> no, but no no but, but I think we really struggle with this I mean because you know historically you know I you know I used to work a bit with Lib Dem campaigners yeah. and stuff like that and you know I sort of say like come on man up defend it a bit more mm. be a bit bolder you can't just go to a fight with a pair of Jesus mm. sandals and the thing is that you need Jesus sandals but you also need hammers mm. and you know you can't you have to be a very skilled at handling the two and I don't think there's a contradiction between being ruthless and empathetic mm. I mm. think that you you know you can turn up to the fight say we're not going to use the bat if we don't have to mm. but my god we will use that bat that yeah. you don't you do that's your last resort it's not your first resort and I think we ha you know we either tend to go too aggressive or too soft and actually you need both and i think the thing with bollocks to brexit is although technically it's quite a harsh phrase after all you know there were a fair number of lib dems as well as others who found the first of those three words actually quite offensive to be used in a slogan but for most other people there was a certain I, almost naughty cheekiness about yeah, it's more fun exactly yeah. in a way that i think revoke had a certain harshness now that may partly also be because of the different political climate you know frankly a phrase that you use when things are going well you're almost bound to look back on with more affection than a phrase that was used when things ended up to be going really badly but i do think there was a certain cheekiness about things like the photo mm. op that Lib Dem meps did with all of them wearing you know that slogan on t-shirts mm. I, I don't think all of them wearing a slogan t-shirt saying revoke would have had that same I mean, maybe it's almost sort of playground sense of naughtiness. This isn't what the teacher thinks we shouldn't do, but that gives it, yeah, that very different emotional tenor. Um, now we could talk about such things forever, but we probably should bring it, bring bring this to an end. So just before we wrap up, um, a final question for you both in terms of what is your favourite political ad? Um, now I have given you forewarning of this, so hopefully, uh, hopefully you will have an ad that comes to mind. Um, which one of you wants to jump in first with an answer? Laura, do you want to go first? I'm happy to go first. When we say my favourite political ad, though, I'm just, it's not my favourite in terms of the party. It's just one of the ones I think is really effective. Yep. So it's actually UKIP mm. during the, I know, during the European elections in 2014. And it's Nigel Farage in the European Parliament doing a short sort of news report to camera. And then basically what it does is it cuts to a speech of Ollie Wren, who was then the, you know, the commissioner for, God, I don't know, budget and financial affairs. Yeah. So we're still in the kind of coming out of the euro crisis. And it's this very flat, boring, jargon filled Mm. speech in the European Parliament where he talks about the six pack and the two pack and it's all incredibly technical and then Farage just comes out the other side and says like what a ridiculous person you know and look at this and we don't even understand what they're saying and they just kind of take away even more account of it you know they just can take more power from us mm. and that's what he's saying and I just to me I've I actually use this in communication about why you can't beat populism with technical detail but I just think it was so effective mm. and it doesn't matter that they were even right it was just perfect you get some guy up who nobody understands with a foreign accent you slam them and they did very well that year. Yep, indeed they did. And Dirk, what's your favourite, or at least ad you most admire for its technical efficacy? So, so 
I'm actually going to choose one from the uh, from the current U.S. presidential campaign. I'm mm. going to choose a one from Republican voters against Trump, and this one was uh, was called um, "LG Loves Joe," which is about Lindsey Graham. Um, and some political commentators in the U.S. actually called this the greatest political ad that they've seen um, in U.S. campaigning. And I'm not sure about that, but it's very very effective because it essentially, if you've not seen it, it uses footage of you know obviously that was filmed in a documentary before 2016. Mm. You know when Lindsey Graham was against Trump. Um, and he's talking in, in, the, in the back of the car, and he's, you know, and it has footage of him talking, first of all, about Biden, and second of, of all, about Trump. And it uses his campaign slogans from 2016 during the Republican yeah. primaries, where he calls Trump a race-baiting bigot and tells him to go to hell, um, and says that we need to, you know, save the soul of the Republican Party. And then it cuts to him sitting in the back of the car, and he says that, you know, that, that Joe Biden is as good a man as God ever created, and that if you don't like him, there must be something wrong with you. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the, way that it's, the way that it's filmed, the way that it's put together, um, you know, the sort of the, the contrast with him talking about Trump and him talking about Biden, the fact of who he is, you know, it works on, it works on so many levels. Mm-hmm. The fact that it comes back to decency and values um, and about, you know, Biden essentially being a good person. You know, at the end of the day, as we talked about, people want someone who is decent, fundamentally decent, um, to be the next president. Um, and I thought that that ad was extremely powerful. Hmm. Fantastic. That's a really interesting pair of ads to round off a really interesting conversation. So thank you very much for joining me on the show today, Laura and Dirk. Okay, thank you. Uh, listeners can find Laura on twi- uh, Twitter at MediaWiz and Dirk at Dirk the Rabbit myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed. I'll include links to various of the ads and film clips that we've talked about, as well as to Dirk and Laura's original article that caught my eye. And of course, if you like listening to this show, please do tell others about the podcast. Thank you until next time.